Good morning. It's great to see all of you uh, this morning. We are continue. We're going to be jumping into John here for a couple weeks, and then in about two weeks, we're going to be doing kind of a, our vision series, kind of a conversation of a new season of where we're going to be headed with all a branch. And I'm excited to kind of bring you a lot of that information. And I'm really saying that at the beginning here, just to invite you guys to be there in two weeks to really to really be a part of that three week series. But um, we're going to keep rolling in John this year, and uh, and that includes where we're at right now. Um, and kind of interesting for me is, is this begins, in my mind, with something in particular. But I want to first start with prayer, and then we'll dive into that together. So let's pray real quick. Father, thank you for the opportunity to understand, once again, your grace. Thank you for the opportunity to take in your justice and mercy in a way that we see how it, it coalesces in one place. So we ask that you would indeed enable us to allow what we learned today to be uh, something that spurs our worship and our prayer. Would you uh, bless our time? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but my children love going to the mailbox. They'll grab the key, they'll run out there, they'll unlock it, they'll find whatever they can and bring it back like they've found a hoard of treasure out of nowhere. Um, My wife and I, we don't feel that way. We hate going to the mailbox, which is why they find a hoard of treasure. We don't go like every once in a great while because you never know what you're going to find in a mailbox, right? You may get exciting packages once in a while, but more often what you're going to discover is a bill or some kind of new information or a bunch of trash you're going to throw away, something like that, that to us brings us anxiety. And especially when you find that one thing, you know, that one thing we all dread the most that comes through the mail, a jury summons. Anybody like going to jury duty? Anybody's like, I got a jury duty. You're just like jumping up and down. Okay, there's a few. Anybody, I see, most people I know can't stand, anybody else can't stand jury duty. You're just like, oh my goodness. You've already got your ready-made excuses ready to go. You're, 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 I've, I've been a few times. I've never been able to get onto a jury. Would like to do it once in my life, um, although I've been told that's not as great as it sounds. How many of you have been on a jury yourself? How many of you in like, or tell me, do it? Or how many of you would say like, don't? Okay, there's, see, that's what I'm saying. It's kind of interesting, but you, we, we, we have different perspectives. What I love about jury duty, the only thing I enjoy about it is when you finally get called into the room and you hear everybody's crazy excuses, right? I mean, you hear some of the wackiest things. Now, most everybody's like, I, I can't afford this and it's gonna be a hardship on my family and everybody else is like, I'm writing that down for next time. And so, you know, and then there, I love it when the school teachers say that because they didn't know better. They're like, oh, it's gonna be a hardship. I don't get paid. They're like, well, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a school teacher. Then the judge always goes, sit down. And I'm just like, oh, and there's like, you're a public, you're a public employee. You don't, you, you're fine. And it's like, you watch the school teachers go like, oh, and it's like, it's horrible. The best one <coughs> Mark said he had ever heard was just last time, they'll start talking about, you know, these courtroom dramas, how many guys watch courtroom dramas? And then everybody's like, yeah, yeah, they're not like the real thing. And then they, so they have this big, long spiel about that. And so they're going through and one guy just goes, yeah, I'm sorry. I just can't tell the difference between reality and a courtroom drama. And that's how he got out of the room. And it's like, now I'm sitting in one of the worst one I've ever heard. They go over this whole spiel about what the case is going to be. All the guys are already sitting in the box. I'm still in the audience kind of waiting for my name to be called. And they go through this whole thing. And they ask this thing about, well, you know, this guy's Hispanic and you guys got to be level-headed about this. And finally at the end, one guy just raises his hand and says, yes, Mr. So-and-so what? And he's like, 
I just have to tell you, I'm a racist. And uh, I don't, I, I, I can't, I can't adjudicate. I'm like, what kind of person calls himself a racist in front of everybody? He really hates jury duty. And I'm amazed, but no matter what your excuse is, this morning you don't get out of jury duty. You're going to be ushered into a situation in the ancient world that puts you not necessarily in the jury like you and I would think of it, where you're going to make the judgment about what's going to happen, but you're actually going to be called upon at some point at the end of this whole procedure as a member of the community to pick up a baseball-sized stone and fling it at another human being. How does that sound like jury duty? And yet that's exactly what would have been going on in what we're looking at in the scenario this morning. So if you're curious, grab your Bible. We're going to be opening to John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53, and we're going to roll up to 8 verse 11. Now, for those of you who have been joining or who are not new to joining us, you've been coming week after week after week, you're going, why are we going backwards? I thought we were going to John 9. Why are we back at John 7? And some of you may actually be thinking, why did we skip this section in the first place? Um, this is the section called uh, The Woman Caught in Adultery, or The Adulterous Woman. And in your Bibles, you'll actually notice, if you don't have one, you can, you can grab one from under the seats on page 894, you'll find this. It's double bracketed. And the reason why it's done that is because scholars who study the ancient manuscripts have all pretty, have all kind of come to a conclusion that this section of John actually doesn't show up in our earliest manuscripts. Um, and is actually not commentated upon by any of the ancient church fathers. It's kind of like blank all the way up until about 600 AD. And so that, that's not to go like, that doesn't belong in our Bibles. Why, why, why are we preaching it? Uh, the reason I'm bringing this out is because you need to know why those double brackets are there and that it wasn't part of the original argument. It's been inserted here. But what's interesting about it is it fits so well the language of Luke and his kind of discussion. Now, I'm not saying Luke wrote it, but, it, but it's found in Luke in some cases in the ancient manuscripts. And, and, but, and what's interesting about the text is that for 1,300 years now, the church has viewed this as something that edifies and teaches us about Jesus. Many have speculated that this text has, was known and floated throughout churches. There have been references and mentions of a certain kind of story like this in various church fathers, but ultimately it shows up later. And so there's, there's debate, like how do we treat this? Is this really scripture, is it not? And what we're gonna just say is, you know, it's like scripture on probation, right? It, it, it's something that we're not willing to throw out, but it's not something that we're going to be like, we're going to set all our doctrines off of. It's something that we're going to teach on because it's part of the church tradition. It's part of being Christians and part of our Bible for so long that we're going to not ignore it. I'm going to teach from it. I'm going to teach it from the historical context, but I'm also going to, I just need to bring this up and for two reasons. One is so that you can trust your Bible. I mean, really, this shouldn't make you go like, oh my gosh, my Bible's got, no, no, no. Just so you know, scholars know when things showed up in your Bible. That whole conspiracy theory out there about things got put in my Bible and it was, uh, it was made to look this way isn't true. We know all the parts that got changed and adjusted, or at least we know a ton of them. And we mark them and we look at them and we have a methodology to examine them. You have one of the most accurate Bibles in church history. And so you don't need to be afraid of what you find in your Bible. In fact, you can be more confident that you're reading as close to what the apostles wrote 
originally or the author wrote originally. And so what I'm, I'm encouraging you guys to, to trust what you have here and that's, that's why I bring this up. Now, that being said, I taught the argument of John without this. Now we're gonna go back and we're gonna pick it up. And so the picture that it begins with is that, and, there, and, and it begins with everybody going home. It was supposed to be the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody gathered their stuff, closed up their booths and marched on out to home. And so that's where it begins in verse 53. They went each to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So he hangs out on the Mount of Olives and, and, and sleeps that night. And early in the morning, he came to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. So there's a sizable crowd that's formed. He's teaching these guys his teachings. And then out of nowhere, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, command, the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And so begins a contest with Jesus. And in the middle of them dragging this woman to the midst of this crowd, it would have been saying that if we're gonna stone her, it's the community surrounding here that's gonna do it because that's how this is executed. And so the, this crowd that would have been listening like this has now been brought into a judicial situation. In fact, when you see the word scribe, in the ancient world, a scribe was not some guy who wrote down a bunch of things. It was a, it, it's a man who was expert in the law. He knew it so well and so accurately, he would act like a jurist. He would sit and make sure that what was being argued was correct according to the law. These guys are experts of the law. The Pharisees, on the other hand, these guys are the ones who try to live it out as perfectly as possible. And so they were considered the spiritual giants of the age, the guys that everybody wanted, the, every, the average Jewish person wanted to be like a Pharisee. If they had had the ability and the strength to memorize like they did as much of the Bible as they did and, and to do the things that they did, they, they would be after the Pharisees. And so Pharisees are, are well looked at and so are the scribes. And this comes in as a picture of an actual like judgment court scene. And so this woman is drug in and they say, hey, look, Jesus, we need to stone her according to what Moses told us. And suddenly now, while this woman is on trial in a sense, Jesus is really the one on trial, as we'll see as this unfolds. First of all, they mentioned that Moses has said that he, this woman should be stoned. We find that in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 22. And in some other spots, but this is the main one. In Deuteronomy 22, it says, if a man, man found a woman is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now what's interesting is it's likely they're referencing the next one, which specifically says, talks about this idea of stoning. He says, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now I just need to pause here for a second, because this is a really tough passage. I mean, you want to talk about something that's hard. Talk about stoning. Now, obviously, there's some cultural differences here. Modern-day stoning is very different than, than ancient stoning. 
In America, stoned means completely different things than, than what they meant back then. But even modern-day stoning in the Middle East is very different than how it was adjudicated in the ancient world. You weren't just able to drag somebody in and, and accuse somebody and stone them. That's, this was a very unusual scene. It's far closer to what we would expect in some cases. But there were witnesses that had to be called. You had to, the, both the man and the woman were supposed to be present. All of these aspects are there. And so it makes you start to go like, what's going on here? Why is just the woman being drugged into the scene? Some have pointed out in the ancient world, men, it, there was this commentary, this kind of like, men will be, boys will be boys, men will be men, then go do their thing. And, but the women, they get in trouble. <clears throat> now, we, we don't like that. That's offensive to us, and it should be. That was wrong. In the case of the law, that's not the case. Very clearly, the man and the woman were both supposed to be there. And so Jesus has a right to point that out, but we'll, we'll kind of play with that in a minute. But here it's very clear. They were to stone this, oh, this woman and this man for adultery. Now, really what this trouble is, is as we, as modern 21st century Americans, we feel like that's a massive overreach of justice. I mean, really, for, a, for an adulterous affair, you get killed? Not just killed, you have people hurl baseball-sized rocks at you from the community. It seems cruel to the community, that seems unusual, seems cruel to the person. What is going on here that this is in our Bibles? How do we defend this? Come on, because we all know adulterous affairs aren't really that big of a deal, according to our culture. And yet, maybe we're the ones who've got the wrong idea about how big of a deal an adulterous affair actually is. See, in our world, with cell phones and internet and the ability to drive miles and miles to locations where our loved ones don't know anybody, adulterous affairs seem like these things, rendezvous and disappearances and these kind of things. But you got to zip yourself back to an ancient culture for a minute. Put yourself in a place without cars where you don't own a horse. Where you're not, when you go out to go to another town, it's going to take you all day to walk there. You're probably going to need somebody's hospitality to keep you there in that town so you know people there, and then you're going to have to come home the next day. You, you, you bake and cook with everybody in your community. When you're out in the fields, you're plowing with the other guys. When you're fixing something in your home, it's the local carpenters who's helping you out, and you know his name, and you know his wife, and you know his kids, and these kids know you, and then you know grandpa. In fact, in some way back there, you're all related. And in the midst of all this, where you're sitting around with your best friend, talking at the grinding mill, picking up water together, spending community time together, and she's lying to you that she's your friend because she's sleeping with your husband. See, the way that works, and even in a city scenario where it was far, where you still didn't travel super far within your city, you stayed within your general zone, you are destroying the fabric of the very community you live in. It was to take the very children that were playing with your kids and tear their family apart and the cousins who lived with them and the other cousins of the other family now are in, against each other with honor problems. This destroys everything. It wasn't just some oops, fun thing. I fell in love. No, none of that was really even in the language in the time. The reality is these were extremely serious situations that ripped and destroyed entire towns apart. 
And so Moses very clearly said, this is something so destructive, you need to purge it. And had it at this level, even to where the community was a part of it. Now that's intense for us. And, and I'm not trying to say we're smarter or better morally than they were. I'm just saying, guys, you got to put yourself in a radically different scenario and let's not be so, oh, we know better than you kind of attitudes. They, they were dealing with a radically different world. And so here it is, though, this scenario shows up, and this woman is brought, and, and it's clear she's guilty. The other problem is that we have a very strong victim to hater mentality in our culture. I think we've all read the Scarlet Letter at some point in high school, isn't that true? And so if you had to read the Scarlet Letter, somewhere in there you've got this heartbeat for an adulterous woman who's, who's, who's got this problem and these big mean Puritan bullies, Pharisees, are dragging this woman in and gonna harm her. That, I can't tell you how often that plays in our background of our heads more than what the story is. Because Jesus is not going to let her off. She is, she is an adulteress. She's committed adultery. She's caught in the act of it. And Jesus doesn't deny it. And he doesn't close it down. And so Jesus is in the middle of a very interesting situation. Stoning at this time in the New Testament is not popular. People didn't continue to do it. In fact, it was illegal because Romans said they get to declare when there's going to be a judgment. And so it wasn't necessarily practiced. And yet here are the Pharisees forcing Jesus to make a choice. Are you going to obey Moses or are you going to listen to Rome? Are you going to love the sinner like you claim we should or are you going to do what's just? So Jesus' teaching is on the line. And so is the opportunity for him to be arrested. Notice how verse six states it. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. They were looking to put Jesus in a situation to where they could have him arrested by Rome and dragged away. And why not, why not better than to just say he was starting his own government, making somebody be stoned when, without Romans, Rome's uh, official okay? And so suddenly Jesus is in a situation, if he says, I'm not with Moses, I'm with Rome, though the crowd's not going to like him because that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. If I'm not with Rome, I'm with Moses. Well, Rome's not going to like that and the Pharisees have a chance to have him arrested. So Jesus is in a bit of a test. He's in a quandary in the situation. Let's see how he takes care of this. Now, it's it just his, his interesting move is not to say, guys, this is a mistrial. Nope, what he does is instead he, he bends down, verse six says, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. Say, what? That's his move? It's like, a, he's got no man there he could call mistrial. Where are the witnesses? He's got that option. No, what he does is he goes, And of course, it's right here. Every pastor on the planet goes like, what did he write on the ground? Maybe it was their names or their children or all their sins. And then the Ten Commandments. No, no, no. The, the, the text doesn't tell us. There's no reason to believe what he was writing on the ground is relevant. What's interesting is what the text does tell you. Look at it again. It tells you that he went onto the ground and wrote with his finger. Why do you need to know that? Some say, oh, it's just a historical reality. See how relevant this text is. Yet, in verse 8, they do it again. He, once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. What's interesting about this text is actually in the Greek, and it doesn't translate well into English because you don't see it. 
Um, the Old Testament was once translated from Hebrew into Greek, and there's a section in it that has this interesting conversation about a finger and writing and stuff like this. In fact, what's fascinating is those two words, the second word, wrote, is different than the first word, wrote, right here in, in John 8. The second word, wrote, only shows up once in the entire New Testament. It's not your normal word for wrote. And the only time it shows up is right here. The other time it shows up is very clearly in a passage in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 31, 18, it says, and, Moses gave, or, and, and he gave, God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony. Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Well, that's interesting enough because the finger metaphor in writing, but then you move down to verse 15 and the next chapter and Moses is going to walk down the mountain now. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hands, the tablets that were written on both sides, note that one, and on the front and on the back they were written. The first written is different than the second word written. In fact, it's the same combo that you just found right here. And the author of this text is trying to get you to see that when Jesus knelt down and wrote with his finger, it was that finger that wrote and penned the very law on the tablets that we know as the Ten Commandments. That Jesus isn't in a quandary here. Actually, he's the judge. He's in complete control. He's the author of the law. He knows it precisely. He knows it accurately. He wrote it with his finger. And in this symbolism, he's drawing your mind back to this well-known section of the Old Testament for the, for the Jewish people. Seeing that Jesus is indeed God come who'd written the very law. Now, this gets interesting because he's not going to excuse the woman. As the judge, he, he literally is going to now to say she's guilty. Notice what he says. He says, let him, as they continue to ask him, they kept pushing him forward. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Isn't that wonderful how, how nice and loose we make that language? Let him. You know, if there's somebody here who, who might not have sin, let him throw that first. No, actually it's written in the command language. He is making a command. Jesus is standing up saying, if you don't have sin in your life, Throw the first stone. And he's not yelling at them. He's commanding them to act. The judgment is final. Yes, she's guilty. She should be stoned. The first person who doesn't have any sin, go ahead and throw it. Now, immediately my mind goes to a Catholic joke that I can't get into, but um, my Catholic friends love this joke. And out of nowhere comes a rock and bangs upon the woman's head, and he turns around and says, Mother! But anyway, because... Uh, <laughs> My Catholic friends think that's funny. But the, uh, the reality is that there's nobody there but Jesus who has no sin. And it's very clear, they all realize it. The oldest look around and they start to go, oh, that's not me. And of course, it's the young who need to leave last because the young are the ones like, I'm good, I'm, I know I haven't done nothing wrong. And they watch the old guys go and they're like, if they're leaving, maybe I need to leave. And, that's how, and so slowly they, they proceed and they leave. But notice Jesus isn't doing what we would want him to do. Call mistrial. Let her off. Let her be free. I mean, come on. This is a bunch of haters on a victim. I mean, she's even categorized as those people, those women. 
And yeah, that's not anything that Jesus does. He says, no, no, that's right. She should be stoned. And he needs to start with a person with no sin. And that's heavy and uncomfortable. Because in essence, it, I mean, was she thinking he's bending down to pick up a rock? And he bends down and writes again in the dirt? I mean, what are, where is she at? Because these guys have all left. They realize they have sin. She realizes she has sin. In some way, they all realize they should be right there in the middle. I mean, all of us in this room have sin. I think we should know that rather well. And it's like, ah, my sins aren't that big of a deal. But all sin is sin. It's all the same. Let me give you a simple example of how you can identify how often you sin and how much sin can change and affect your life. Okay, in my life, just two weeks ago, I was up in the cabin, uh, my, my in-law's cabin, with my family. We were waiting for the snow, that, and we kind of, we, my wife and I, we missed it. But, you know, we, we'd done some sledding from the past snow, and so it was, it was a good time. But we were watching a movie one night, and there were these Cheetos, brand new Cheetos we had bought. The kids were, like, begging for Cheetos all day long. Oh, want Cheetos. We're like, we're not giving you Cheetos. And, man, I wanted some Cheetos. It was the middle of the movie, and I'm like, I get up, and I sneak around out of the back. Sneak is the operative word. And I sneak over to the pantry. It has these kind of folding doors that have like kind of lattice work. And I open them, and I go in, I grab the Cheetos, and I go, and I close the doors. I open the bag, and and, and they have a dog named Buster, and Buster comes up, and he's like, I smell Cheetos. It's the boom, 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 boom. Like, my Cheetos, I'm glad the door is closed. And I'm sitting there crunching on the Cheetos, and my father-in-law walks right by the door, and he stops, and he hears, and he opens the door and he's like, what are you doing? And I lie. I go, the dog wanted Cheetos, so I shut the door. <laughs> My sister, and he pushed it downstairs and I blamed it on the dog. And I did. I blamed it on the dog. <laughs> what am I doing? I'm eating Cheetos. Why do I feel like I have to lie about it? Right now, this is a confession to him because he's here. And I'm like, okay, this feels horrible. <clears throat> And the answer actually is because inside of me was captured greed and selfishness. Why else would I shut the door? All day long, I'm telling the kids, you can't have any. You can't have any. My wife's like, you can't have any. I'm like, I'm going to have some of mine. I paid for them. It comes from my paycheck. Mine. Finger looking good. You know, it's like, this is just bad. In my heart, I'm going like, I'm caught. And you know what comes out when you're caught? Excuses. Excuses come out. It's called justifying yourself. And man, we're ready to make every excuse. Oh, the dog was sitting there. I had to shut the door. No, no, no. The woman's sitting there. What position was she in? What excuses was she feeling? Was she angry? She was caught? This isn't fair. Where is he? You know, he promised me this. He promised me that. He set this up. Da-da-da. What was going on in her head? What excuses are flying from anger? Because she'd been caught. How I many often do our kids get angry because they're just caught? The excuses come flying. Oh no, she's sitting there and she is just broken. What if the shame of being in that scenario is just overwhelming her? Oh, we all know what that feels like, don't we? When you catch yourself in sin, we're the worst judges. We reserve some of the worst names we'd ever call anybody for ourselves and our minds when we've done something wrong. I mean, we are ready to pound ourselves with stupid idiot. Well, I mean, I'm being nice because I can't say the words we probably say to ourselves out loud. 
And really when we start to realize it and that pounding hits, we begin to wonder, if I can't love myself, who else could really like me? And so we have to hide. We can't let that out. If they really knew who we were, and I can't stand myself in this mess, they couldn't handle me in this mess, let alone God. And our excuses come out to cover the shame and our excuses explode to keep ourselves feeling okay. So maybe people can keep loving us. Or we just go to the complete opposite of the pendulum. We just stand up defiant to all people. Yeah, this is me. I'm a sinner. And all you who haven't sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone. Ha <laughs> you can't, can you? And so we romp around on stages showing off our sinfulness, very obvious about our sinfulness, making money off our sinfulness, driving our craziness with our sinfulness, whatever, because we know you're all hypocrites if you judge me. What do we do? Because that's not the way Jesus took. He didn't take any of these routes. He didn't excuse sin. In fact, as the one who penned the very laws with his finger, he can't excuse sin. He's just, and he will deal with every sin finally and fully. And so I, I fear, if I, when I stop the narrative, did he bend down to pick up the rock? Because he's the judge. He has every just right to take and condemn her and execute the judgment. But what we find is not Jesus who just acts as judge. We meet the mercy of God who is Jesus. And so it continues in verse nine. It says, but when they heard it, they went away by one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, sin no more. No, he does call it a sin. He doesn't excuse it. And yet, he doesn't condemn her. How is it that Jesus who pens the law, doesn't uphold the law. What, is he not powerful enough? Is his love getting in the way so that God is swayed in his judgment with humanity that he, he won't judge sin? So let's just go party, guys. God doesn't care. Love's gonna win in the end? Because there's some out there that want you to think that. But the reality is that Jesus sees this situation where his justice must prevail and yet he gives mercy. What's going on here? I think it's, the answer is found in multiple places, but let me give you a simple one from Second Peter. It says, by the same word of the heavens and the earth we ne- that now exists are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So there's this day of judgment coming that is promised. There's a day of justice that will erupt on the earth. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's not that Jesus is ignoring judgment. No, judgment will come. That God's mercy comes is because God is patient with us who make so many horrible, dumb sins 
and excuse ourselves all the time. But Jesus isn't going to excuse sin. But Greg, he's, gotta, he's, he's not going to excuse sin, but he just let her go. Right. He's being patient. See, Jesus will never excuse sin because one day the rocks did fly. The stones came zooming in. Only it was a figurative. They came from the one who had no sin, namely the Father, and the one who bore it was namely Jesus as he hung on a cross. And there, the very stoning of this woman was borne by the very one who released her. That all of us who ought to sit in the center of a judgment scene, and one day we will, and every evil thing and every sin we've committed will be dealt with and judged. The question is, at the time of the sentencing and when the punishment's coming, have you allowed Jesus to cover you? Did you allow him to curl you up under him as every pound and every beating and every punishment that came, he took? Because that's what happened at the cross. Why would we ever push him off? I mean, yet some of us, we push him off and we stand defiant like there's nobody out there that can judge us. And so we push Jesus off as thinking, I can handle this, but we can't. God will judge. He knows everything. He will one day see it perfectly. Don't don't think that you can fight him off. Some of us think, well, no, I I can get it right. I can figure it out. I I can fix it myself, but we can't. Christians, hear me, even in your own sins that you continue and you can't justify yourself. You go to God through Jesus because he covered you. You can't do it on your own. There's no amount of guilt and beating yourself up that's gonna get you right with God. You must go to him through Christ who bore your sins for you. If you're not a Christian, the only way you're gonna make it through the judgment day is by trusting that Jesus has covered you and borne that punishment that is rightly ours. That punishment we give to ourselves in our heads. And maybe that's why you push Jesus off. You just think, no way, I'm just too angry. This can't be happening to me. This isn't fair, but it will. And it is fair. Or maybe you think that God just couldn't love you because you're just struggling so badly with what you've done and how you thought. No, he loves you so much that he sent his son who was willing to bear our sins that if you would receive him, you would be forgiven. You wouldn't have to go through the judgment. You wouldn't be condemned. What this shows us is just a small event and what will play out in the largest scale on the day of judgment. And right now, he is offering you mercy through his cross. He's giving you grace, a gift. If you would receive it, the judge of the universe on that day would say, Stan, I do not judge you. I don't condemn you. It's already been paid in full. Not excused. Not ignored. Paid. Let that fuel your worship. Let that fuel your prayers and your repentance. And let that fuel holy living. He has paid for our sin, not excused it. Let's pray. Father, thank you oh, so much for the fact that you sent your son, not just to walk around on this earth a little bit and show us what it's like to live and give us a bunch of rules, but literally to bear our punishment. 
Your mercy is great. And your way is so faithful. God, if there's any in this room who need that today, open their hearts. And draw them to you, I pray. In Jesus' name.